Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine. This week, we're chatting to Christopher Fowler. He's just published his 19th Brian and May detective book. It's called Oranges and Lemons. And it starts with the Speaker of the House of Commons getting crushed to death by citrus fruit. Which you've got to say, you know, that's a page turner. That'll make you carry on. It's a brilliant start. Uh, and it shows how Christopher has quite a, a singular inspired imagination. We talk about what he wants from a crime novel and how he thinks the art of writing a good one has slightly been lost recently. You can also hear about his bare bones draft and why he thinks novels need quite a lot of time to sort themselves out. A novel takes a lot of thought and it gestates over a long period. And I don't, I do not, I simply do not believe people who say, uh, like James Hadley Chase wrote No Orchids for Miss Blandish on a flight. Because it's too well constructed to have been uh, come up with from scratch, and so that first draft is 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 going to be the one that you never show to anybody. It is too um, blunt and poorly written, and it's about creating a shape. So you can't really write over that draft and keep that one rolling, because you really have to. You would you would just end up getting rid of all everything that's in the first draft. It's just not good enough to be seen. I hope you got from that how brilliant this chat is going to be. Christopher really has thought about uh, the writing industry, publishing and the writing process as well. So stay there. Uh, It's all on the way in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes, welcome along. This is Writer's Routine. My name's Dan Simpson. Thank you so much for finding us. It's the show where we take a look inside the day in the life of one of the most successful authors around. Now, this week, we've got a hugely prolific author. Uh, he has written books, screenplays, video games, graphic novels, and Christopher has just published the 19th Brian and May book, uh, Oranges and Lemons. It sees the peculiar crimes unit on their toughest case yet. Uh, now, it was inspired by the peeling bells of London and a, a strangely gruesome nursery rhyme as well. Uh, Christopher has won the Dagger in the Library Award, which is given to whole collections of work. It's not just an amazing one-off book. 
it's that you've managed to do that again, 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 and, and to prove that as well. I mean, Mark Billingham, Lee Child, Peter James, Val McDermott, they are all huge fans of Christopher's stories, uh, which shows really how influential he is. Uh, and he gets it. It's a brilliant chat, I think, because he really picks apart the craft and the process of writing. Uh, he's one of my favourite guests that I think we've ever had on the show, really. Uh, and we start, as we always do, with what he sees around him in the place where he sits down to write. Okay, when I sit down to write, the very first thing I see is St Paul's Cathedral. Um, I live in King's Cross, and I have, I'm right on the direct line, the sight line through to St Paul's. So as I set my books in London, it's an amazingly... Um, atmospheric thing to see every morning when you start work i can only imagine what uh yeah what what a what a vista that is to kind of really place yourself where you write what about what's inside the room so you've got this spectacular window in front of you uh, talk to me about that what's on the walls if you've got the books there if you've got art if you've got maybe whiteboards with plottings all over it talk me through that <laughs> you're going to be horrified you are so going to be horrified everyone is appalled by the way i work because the image of the writer in the cluttered garret doesn't really um, work for me. I live, in a, I live in a glass box on the roof of an old paper bag warehouse in King's Cross. And there's nothing on the walls because they're made of glass, so you can't really put anything up. Um, and it's quite difficult to find a, a, a kind of office space. So I actually work... Um, with a uh, like a little tiny laptop stand uh, just on my lap, really, just typing. And there's nothing else. Everything is cable-free and cordless, so everything is Bluetooth. So um, I have no research notes because everything is in my head, um, which is quite tricky when you're on the 19th book or 20th book in a series and you're just having to remember it all. But I don't really like working with research. Um documents i mean obviously if it's a if it's if there's something very realistic and complex uh, a real anecdote or something about london or a piece of history i'll have researched that and i will have I've written that down in a notebook um and i'll use that but outside of that i don't really use anything except what's in my head so there's nothing else on the table um there's the laptop my headphones uh oh there's a book about london bridge and my mobile and that's it. As you say, I mean, you've, you've written over 40 books. And, and if all that you need is what's in your head, uh, are you are you good at writing elsewhere? I mean, you must be, you know, published so many books, you must be fairly busy quite a substantial portion of the year. How are you with working in hotel rooms and on trains and on planes? Yeah, anywhere. Absolutely anywhere. I mean, I've, I like working on a laptop. Um, I mean, there is this thing about posture, uh, problem, you know, posture problems with, with writers. You say you can work anywhere, but actually when I think about it, ideally, I'd like a 44 centimetre um, drop from my surface to the ground, which is a standard height of a table. Uh, And I would like the chair not too tight to the table. And I don't want to hunch forward all the time. Because um, a few years ago, I had to do two books very, very quickly, one after the other. And my right hand went numb, and I lost all the feeling or use of my fingers. And uh, I went to a physio. He didn't know what it was. And then I was talking to someone else who said, well, show me how you sit at your laptop. And I showed him, took some pictures. And he said, you need new glasses. 
because what I was doing was I was sitting forward, my glasses were slightly short distance, and I was leaning right towards the screen and scrunching up my neck and trapping the nerves of my right arm. And it changed the way it changed the way I was writing. So once I changed my glasses, I got the feeling back in my hand. Well, I, I would imagine many people don't assume that writing can be the most physically demanding job. But look what you've just proved to us there. Uh, when you are traveling and you say you can write anywhere, is there something, though, Christopher, that you do need As, apart from your laptop, apart from the ideas in the head? Is there something that just helps you get the words down maybe that, that when you when you are struggling just a little bit of inspiration there yeah um well I carry Kindle everywhere and I do dip, dip back in whenever I'm really stuck on a character or describing a character I dip back into Dickens because he made it look so easy and there's a fantastic book by Michael and Molly Hardwick um I think it's called the Dickens Encyclopedia it's just short pieces about how Dickens introduces his characters with a, a sort of quick character sketch, a quick thumbnail on each person who comes in and out of his books. And sometimes you look through those and of course he makes it look so easy and uh, you're struggling, I'm struggling. And I read some of those things back and then I think about the, the character I'm trying to create. And normally the characters I create are a mixture of people I know uh, things that I've heard about other people and something from fiction as well. And you kind of scrunch those together. And Dickens is often the kind of, like the mother in the sourdough. It's it's the thing that starts you off. At quite a technical level, Christopher, I don't suppose you could just, just try and walk me through how reading a Dickens and reading those character introductions just helps you out when you're introducing your characters i mean is is it just a uh is it an inspiration level is there more to it is it the pace of the sentences the beats that he's hitting along the way no it's a, it's it's um a characteristic or a a, a, a charming way of, uh, of of writing a sentence about someone will stick in your head there's i can't think of the character offhand dickens describes a woman who is not to be trifled with when near knives um <laughs> And she's a perfectly lovely person with a temper. And I thought, oh, she sounds like... And then I think of a friend of mine. And I go, well, actually, I should add a temper to that character. And then I've got something to work with. If you if you don't have those things to begin with, and you really build up from the ground with the character, always. I mean, it took me a long time to figure out that crime novels are not about the plots. They're about the characters. I mean, I wish I had figured that out years ago. I spent a long time trying to come up with very clever, complex plots without realising that nobody ever remembers the ending of a crime novel. (laughs) They remember the character in the early parts. Doesn't that lead to the question then, Christopher, that why... And, and I'm not, you know, I'm not, criti- I'm not criticizing because, it, it, and well, I'm not, I'm not criticizing you, but because I know that it's so hard to write crime novels, especially. But w- doesn't that lead to then the point that why are so many protagonists in crime novels similar? You know, the grisly detective, the 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 ex army person who, uh, who's you know got a point to prove. These these tropes come up again and again for brilliant reasons because people love reading them. But if the characters are what keeps what keeps are what crime novels are about, why do you think quite often they are similar? 
I think it's been. A, I think there's more of a problem now than there was when I was growing up reading novels because less is taken from real life now, uh, and more is taken from TV and film, and you get an awful lot of characters that uh, I, you can all automatically fill in all all of their their details from a few scenes with them in a in a on a TV show, say, or in a book, <clears throat> and you just see the same. Um, carbon copy characters trotted out and it's just it's it's laziness really and I, 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 I maybe it's a lost technique because it is quite you learn so much when you sit down and talk to someone unusual and you you find that you use so much more of that in a book than you would from just coming up with oh yeah the alcoholic ex uh, the copper with the ex-wife and the alcohol problem and you know, that's, it's just so cliched and boring. And I actually went out to the streets here and met a police officer here. And she was telling me that she loved the um, stakeouts on the rooftops of uh, uh, the, some of the, of the buildings around here when they'd sit up on the roofs all night. And she said, oh, the incredible thing is all the pigeon guano up here. It really clears the sinuses. And she'd tell you all these strange details about her working life which you just won't get from TV or any other source. So it's great to just really hang out with people who, who know their jobs and, and talk to them. And then you can add other elements, obviously. This only works if the previous night I have decided where I'm going the next day in the book. So if I realise that Ben, the character Ben, has to go to South London to meet with... A, a, a very bad person who is deceiving him. I figured that out the night before, and then I'm going to sit down. Let's say I'm going to sit down and do that the next day. So I'll, I get up pretty early. I normally start about six, mainly because it's very, very bright flat, and um, I'm just awake. So I start then. Um, I normally, actually, the first thing I normally do is blog. So I blog every day, and uh, that's kind of like a warm up. It's a bit like, you know, if you were going to do a workout, it's it's just a lovely way to get the brain fired up again. So I'll do a quick blog and then I will sit down and launch into the development of that scene. Um, but I won't write too much in one chunk, um, probably four pages, five pages maximum. And then I'll take a break and then I'll probably take another break in the middle of the afternoon. But I, then I'll often... Um, pick it up at the most awkward moment, <laughs> you know, when we've got friends coming around or, or you're meant to be doing something entirely different. And of course it clicks into your head what you should be doing. Um, and it, also you get those moments, the really annoying moments, like at 11 o'clock at night where you suddenly go, oh, well, of course he's got a girlfriend called so Then you have to go back and fix it right then and there. Otherwise you'll forget. You, you said that that's on a day when you have figured out what you want to write the day before. Yeah. If you didn't have that luxury, but you knew you had to wake up and get words out, what happens then? Well, that's much more tricky. I mean, during lockdown, it was tricky for me. I had a few stressful problems to deal with here. And one of the first scenes I always write in the Brian to May books is a letter from the police chief unit head to his staff, which is always inadvertently embarrassing or awkward. And it's always full of jokes. It's, it's, it's a very funny way of refreshing the readers with who all the, who all the main characters are. So um, 
and it's what it's my favorite thing to write in each of the books so i had to i had to do that piece the other day and i sat down and i didn't have i was in a bad mood and i did not have a sense of humor working for me at all and i just couldn't do it i wrote down the bare bones of what i wanted him to say but it wasn't funny it wasn't clever so i called my agent and i was talk, we were talking and she said oh you never put the jokes in until the last draft she said you've they're always you're always doing the bare bones of the story and then you always embellish towards the end. Have you never noticed that? No, no, it hadn't even crossed my mind. So she said, don't worry about it. Just leave it be and you'll do those when you're in a more a more suitable frame of mind. You mentioned you put you put stuff on in a later draft then. How long will it take you to, to, to work through all the drafts of your story? Oh gosh, it's always the same. Well, with, certainly with... So there's two types of books, I, well, many types of books I do, but I have a series running. So I have a crime series running, which is a whole separate set of rules, because in a way it's like one gigantic book. Um, and I'm working on the 20th volume of that. All the other ones are standalone books. So each time you start one of those, you are creating a new world. You're starting afresh. Those take a lot longer than stepping back into the room with the characters that you know and recognize at least it always used to be three drafts and for the series always came out at 50 chapters but the funny thing happened with improved technology was that the drafts were no longer distinct so there used to be the first draft which was i always called it um my uh, stop the characters from bumping into the furniture draft which is Get everybody from A to B, from where you want them to be, and write the story through, no matter how clunky it is and how badly it reads. Second draft, really good fun one. This is where you make the whole thing work and you fill it out. So I always write short and it gets longer. The book gets longer, which is the opposite of what most people do. And then the third draft is the embellishment, which is the putting the elegance into the language, putting more grace into the book and more atmosphere. But what's happened now is because I'm working on, right now I'm working on a laptop with uh, um, an iPad sidecard to it. Um, I find actually that I'm updating as I go more. So the second and third um, drafts are blended in together. So there's now only two. Leads the question then, why can you not do all that as one? Well, why why initially the three separate drafts? What's going on? And, And, you know, I'm asking this as a general hypothetical about gem writers in all rather than, you know, getting aggressive for you. But why can't you just sit there and crack it all out in one take almost? Why do you need to lay the foundations and then put all the gloss on top? Well, well let's talk about a novel first as opposed to a short story because I'd like to touch on that after. Um, with a novel, a novel takes a lot of thought and it gestates over a long period. And I don't, I do not, I simply do not believe people who say, uh, like James Hadley Chase wrote No Orchids for Miss Blandish on a flight, because it's too well constructed to have been uh, come up with from scratch. And so that first draft is, is, is going to be the one that you never show to anybody. It is too um, blunt and poorly written. And it's about creating a shape. So you can't really write over that draft and keep that one rolling because you really have to, you would, you would just end up getting rid of all everything that's in the first draft because it's just not good enough to be seen. I think, 
I think there would always, certainly for me, I can't imagine only doing one draft. I think there always would need to be two. And the second one, you can improve and improve and improve. But you're working on something with a beginning and a middle and an end and definite characters, but it's just badly written. So the book takes that time. And I will say that, although, say, let's say it takes me four months to write a Brian to May novel, um, I will have been thinking about, about that idea for two years beforehand. So when I was working on the 10th book in the series, I was actually thinking about the 15th book, um, just vaguely, not, you know, not really firmed up ideas. So you, you're, you've always got several different ideas going on in, in your head at different times for the future. How does that change to a short story, which is much more of a snapshot of a moment rather than a 400 page novel? Yeah, the short stories are interesting because I started with shorts. The very first thing I wrote was a short story that got published and it got made into a short film and then it won Best British Short. So I got off to a very good, accidentally good start with the stories. And I managed to get a book of short stories published. It's quite hard for one author to get a collection of their own published because anthologies get published with many authors and it's difficult for one author to, to get a single book off the ground. But I, I've actually had about 14 volumes of short stories published. And when I sometimes, I've said I'm not going to do any more because they don't pay, you can't sell them, quite hard to uh, find a place to put them these days. They very rarely appear in magazines. But I will still sit down for the hell of it sometimes and write a short story. And the other day, oh, well, no, a few months ago now, I sat down, I was looking out of the window and um, I was in Barcelona and I was the, the, the flat opposite. They, ha- they all had their washing hanging outside on these little multiple racks. And everybody, you, you kind, it's kind of like a snapshot of the inside of their houses, but seen from the outside. So I look out of the window and I see, uh, obviously, a young girl is there. She's got a party dress and other things hanging up. And then uh, older man's clothes. And you start to think of mother and a father and a daughter and you build a mental picture of these people. And I just started writing it as a story. And I wrote it in a day and just finished it that evening, put the end on it. And that was the story and I didn't change it. And that was complete. And that's now in a collection called Invisible Blood, um, edited by Maxim Jakubowski. But that's a very rare, I mean, that doesn't happen very often. One of the biggest mistakes I think I make and writers make is to try and cram too much into a short story. Um, because some of the greatest short stories are the simplest. If you look at Shirley Jackson's The Lottery, which everybody often you know, takes as an example of a perfect short story. Um, it's such a simple idea. It's, it's almost impossible to believe it takes 10 pages to tell it. Um, and those ones seem to work much better than someone who's had a vague idea for a novel and have crushed it down into the length of a short story because it's too busy, too much going on, and the, writer, the reader comes away with a muddled idea of what they've just read. So a clean, clear, crisp, concise idea works better in short form. And, and back to the day, uh, you, you've said that occasionally an idea will strike you at 11 o'clock and you simply have to get it down. What, how good are you at switching off at, say, 5pm and, and cracking on with the rest of your life? <laughs> Dan, I'm not. <laughs> I don't. I, 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 um, it runs in the background all the time, like some 
like it's downloading constantly you can like a low hum it's it, it never really it never really turns off but then it never it never did i was doing that when i was eight nine i was filling um uh, diaries with stories terrible terrible stories i still got them <laughs> um where do you think that comes from then because you've written across so many different i mean you know you've written screenplays video games graphic novels audio plays memoirs crime novels short stories where does this this need to, to to tell a story come from do you know i i try i try and figure that and one of my earliest memories when i was a kid i had very bad eyesight i used to have to go to moorfield's eye hospital all the time and on the way back my mum would always um, stop off at the um british museum and we spend time in there or, or the national gallery and particularly when i was looking at paintings i remember i was only interested in the paintings that told a story took me years to figure out that I liked abstracts as well. In fact, more so. But for a long time, I was looking for the pictures that I could either see a story in or I could superimpose a story on. So I think that must have been always there. And I guess from my mother, not from my father, was a scientist and had no imagination. Very, very ingenious person, but not an imaginative man. So I think partly family... But partly a natural disposition to just look at two objects and want to t- want to relate them, join them together somehow in a mini story. So I, I mean, I've read Stephen King does the same thing, apparently. But. What's consistent about all of it, though? What, what for you, Christopher, when you are writing across all these different forms of storytelling, what's the consistent th- thread? Is possibly the wrong word. What's what's consistent about about storytelling wherever it is i guess is the question i'm asking well you kind of just answered it yourself because you said across all of the forms of storytelling i think everything comes back to and the origin is the desire to there's there's probably a couple of things one of them i remember i spent a lot of time exploring worst case scenarios is a way of getting rid of your fears by putting them down on paper and also by creating your joys as well. So I think it's uh, um, both a, a tool, to, to, to sort of mental health tool in a way, but also actually to create enjoyment. Um, I think that was, you know, I was probably the class clown and always enjoyed amusing people. So it's the desire to sort of to be satisfying in, in, in the short form is, is very strong, but also to please yourself because it's great when you, you know, when you produce something you go wow that's really nice i like that i'm proud of that i mean aside from us chatting now and you're coming across very well but when when you're in a big group of people are you a storyteller do you hold court when you're in friends and and do that form of chatting no well i try not to no because um people tend to be bores (laughs) if they do that uh i'm i'm uh there is a I think when you start to hold court, what you're doing is you're transmitting and you're no longer listening. And the danger is that once you stop listening, you don't get any more stories. You don't get any more ideas for stories. I think you suddenly become stuck in... I mean, there's a very famous writer that I had to have dinner with. I wasn't the only person on the table. There were 10 of us. And he held court for three hours and nobody else got a word in. And I thought, well, he didn't learn much out of that dinner but I learned something. <laughs> oh, I tell you, I tell you, we'll have to wait till we're off air for that one, I think. Um, <laughs> how much do you tend to write a day? How many words? Do you know, I don't count words. I can't, I couldn't begin to tell you how many words they are, 
but it's between it depends on what I'm doing. If if I'm going back over a, an existing draft, I couldn't begin to tell you because I'm picking it. I'm I'm dipping in and out of different chapters, um, like shining bits up. If it's if it's a new thing, it's probably between four and six pages. It wouldn't be much. I mean, on a really on a day when I'm on a roll, you know, ten to fifteen, but they're very rare. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry, and some well less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs. United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs, no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com/weightloss. That's PlushCare.com/weightloss. PlushCare.com/weightloss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now, before we get back to it with Christopher, just a very quick reminder that if you are enjoying the show, uh, you can always help us out over on Patreon. By pledging just a dollar or so a month, you can support us in this like peculiar time and help us get you as many chats with the best authors around that we can as often as possible. Uh, now, we do normally at least, I want to say, four episodes a month, sometimes bonus ones as well. Uh, now, by supporting us, you can help that carry on. You can also get show merch. You can even get your book sponsoring this show. So if you've learned anything along the way uh, through like 120 episodes or so now uh, that has helped the way that you tell your stories, if it's helped you keep writing, uh, then why not say thanks for that? Why not help us a little every month? It doesn't have to be loads, please. Just a dollar or so a month really does the world. Uh, it means so much, and you can do that and support us over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Right, let's get back to it then with Christopher Fowler talking about his brand new crime novel, Oranges and Lemons. It is the 19th Brian and May book. Uh, in this half, we talk about how much he thinks about crime novels and writing them, and putting in the tricks and conventions of the genre. Uh, And really, it turns out he doesn't think much about that at all. You can find out why. We also talk about the first moment that he had the idea for what this story became. Uh, And we pick things up, chatting about how he keeps track of where his plot is going, or really doesn't keep track of it at all. (laughs) I was dreading you asking me this. I can't follow the plot of Murder, She Wrote. I do not have a logical mind. Um, Therefore, I'm, in theory, the last safe pair of hands you would ever trust a crime novel to. Because when I started, I haven't the faintest idea where I'm going. But I do know that I've got a central 
um, plot device, which is going to be really interesting hook. And I do know I've got a couple of terrific characters to work with. Um, outside of that, you kind of let the characters drive drive you to some extent, but then if they if you if you start to go off the road, then you have to take the the steering push the analogy you have to take the steering wheel back and back and steer it back on so i mean there's you you can say on the great sort of tv sitcoms when you've got a really good character like uh, basil faulty you could drop them into any situation and kind of see how they're going to behave or what they're going to do next and that was my idea with coming up with a a good detective that he's of such a specific type of person that you could say put him in hospital you know and you know what he's going to do when he's in that place. And and just lastly, before we really do get into the new book, across, it does seem like you understand the way that you work very well because you've written so much. You, you've got that. You've got the idea of your process well uh, down. Well, uh, how long did it take you? Do you imagine before you you started realizing? exactly what time you work best and 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 what you need to do to 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 tell a good story um right well i think to the biggest thing for me is confidence i I never had any confidence as as a kid i didn't really have much confidence as an adult for a long time and it's at the point where you realize that your prose is interesting enough to engage the reader i think it's always a danger if you forget who is reading your book um, so somebody posted a picture to me of um, a, an African cleaner and she had her mop and bucket and she was sitting um, on a train reading one of my earliest books, which was a sort of media comedy set in London. And she'd written across the bottom, um, this is what your typical reader looks like. And I thought, what a great thing to do, because I can never guess who's reading my books. I have no idea. Um, but I do need they do need to all have one thing in common they need to be engaged by what i'm writing and it was at the point when i realized i could engage someone i got more confidence and started relaxing more and stopped trying to be so eager to please in the first few pages which i think is a telltale sign i'm going to take a book and throw it in the bin when i'm when i'm reading something that is annoying and not well written, it's because I find the author is too eager to please and lacking in confidence to trust their material. And so they pile all the stuff in the beginning of the book. It happens a lot in crime novels. Um, and then you stop reading. So you get, it's, it's the point where the confidence kicks in to allow you to have fun with the book. And it shows, and it, the reader knows they're in a safe pair of hands. And they go, I'm enjoying this. I'm going to stay with it to the rest of the book. How able are you to, uh, to to picture your reader across all the different methods that you use? So your reader for a crime novel might be different to your reader to a, a graphic novel or someone playing a video game that you've worked on. Well, that's interesting because it wasn't until I started doing a lot of um, events around the country that, some, that, I, that I very quickly realised that there are, these days there are very few male readers between... 20 and 55 um, at least they don't come along to the the events um i can only put it down to they're working they're probably operating more on ipads they're probably skimming newspapers and magazines more but they are not the audience is generally 
a female skewed for crime and for young males and retired males. So once you realise that, you, it doesn't it doesn't change the way you write, but I think you need to be aware of who your reader is. Probably two things. Um, one, I was thinking about London uh, sounds. And I was thinking about church bells. And somebody pointed out to me, it might have been in a book, that uh, church bells uh, had often uh, linked with nursery rhymes. And the reason why is because the sounds of church bells travelled much further in the past because there was no traffic. You could hear them in the next parish. You could hear them in the next uh, county almost. So the kids who heard them put words to them. And I thought, well, that's interesting. If they convey words, words can convey messages. And um, it's something I've written about once before. I wrote about, wrote about rune, runes and runic simple, symbols, that when runes were, when they tried to stamp out runic sim, symbols in the UK for being pagan, um, the, its, its followers simply carved those symbols into furniture and gave the furniture to their relatives. So the messages continued in the woodwork. And I thought it's a sort of a really interesting thing. And I thought, there's, there's something there that would be a plot. And then I thought of, well, the most famous London song is, is Oranges and Lemons. And I thought, oh, my God, it's got six churches in. But then there's something strange about this song because it's also got this execution at the end of it. And it's also a game that kids actually can still be found playing in a playground. So I had something to work with there. And then I saw... Um, that the Oranges and Lemons Church of St. Clement Danes in the Strand had a day when it filled its church with oranges and lemons. And then I thought, well, we need a death. <laughs> and then I buried a man alive in, in, in oranges and lemons. So it's that really that I wanted to I wanted to get to. Before we move on and find out what you did next, it, it's the idea that you're you've got this general notion about messages that are coded with uh, bell ringing, and then you open with the Speaker of the Houses of Parliament being squashed to death by oranges and lemons. So, like, wh- where does that? Like, I'm going to use the word contrivance. I don't mean contrivance, but you know, it is a it is a device, isn't it, to kind of move things along. How how forced and orchestrated was that? Like the moment where you thought, ah, this is like that works. That is a great idea. Well, in a, in a funny sort of way. Um... If I just set it down like, you know, the bare bones thing, um, probably the first draft looked horrible um, because it would have started with the Speaker of the House of Commons walking outside his flat and the back of this van coming open and all these crates falling on top of him. And it would have been rather blunt and odd. And so it it actually starts with a Japanese tourist who's just arrived in London um, and is trying to make sense of all the things they see around them and they witness you witness this accident happening or possible murder but you see it through the tourist side eyes so already you've got a kind of interesting situation to describe because it, in, when somebody has just arrived in another country and everything is strange to see one more strange thing won't necessarily you might think that's what happens every saturday <laughs> so I thought that's interesting. Uh, let's let's pick it up from there, and that's that's where that one started. 
and that and that came along in the in in more or less the second draft. Is that yeah, what you're saying? So you have that's the second homes. draft. That's that's after you've got. So the first one has a man walks out of his front door and gets clobbered by a bunch of lemons. I mean, it's just silly. It doesn't read well. And it's just odd, but it's there as a placeholder to get you to the next scene. When I come back to it with the second draft. I start to think, well, what does this look like? So I go down to the street. I went down there. I went to the church. I went to the building opposite. I went on the roof of the building opposite, see what I could see from from there of the street. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I didn't realize it was quite so close to the Inns of Court. So let's also have a lawyer coming out of the Inns of Court. And that's the other witness to Japanese tourists. And they describe what they see. And, of course, the two witness statements don't match up. And now you have something really interesting going on. You're dynamic. The cops can't make sense of it because they've got two different stories from two characters. Plus, they've got a, 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 a guy who's been buried. It has to be an accident. It has to be. And then having built myself, having painted myself into that corner, I then kind of challenged myself as to sort of like get out, get out of jail. And rather open-endedly, you're going to hate this question. <laughs> uh, how do you do that? I mean, so especially when, you know, writing crime, there's so many things there are so many dark alleys that we need to be taken down there as a reader but in in the just in 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 solving the crime if you don't really know a lot about it when you start you're just chucking your characters into this situation and seeing what happens at a basic level how do you find out what happens when you are writing when this guy has been squashed to death okay well there's a couple first the the the, the character's uh, if you define them well, they're probably a bit wayward and they'll start to take a little bit of control. So when you try to force a scene onto them, when you say, right, well, the next step of that is to interview, the police interview the wife of the of the injured man or attacked man. Let's start with that scene. Um, if you've come up with good characteristics of the wife, she's not going to lead them in the direction they think it's going to go into. So, in fact, the investigation isn't about why he died at this point. It suddenly switches into the Home Office, want to know whether or not the speaker was of sound mind because he'd been behaving strangely for the last couple of days. And the wife corroborates this. And suddenly you've kind of switched back away from that idea into slightly different territory, and you're surprising the, you're surprising the reader. So the reader's going, oh, well, that's not... Well, I thought it was going to be straightforward whodunit. Uh but it's it's going to be a why done it. It's different. Are they? Are you surprising yourself at that point as well, Christopher? Sorry for cutting in. But... Yeah, no, you are. You totally. So are. when you've got this this wife who's drawing the story in a different direction, is is she naturally doing that because you because of the character you've made her? Are you are you are you kind of forcing her hand at all? No, I want to make her an intro. I want I want even the minor characters to be interesting and real. So um, I want to make her, I don't want to leave some sort of compliant character that I've created who's just there to act as a bridge to the next scene. I want somebody with, with some, some real feeling. So when I came down to, to say, write that, I had her be very honest and blunt, as the wives of politicians often are, and they have the confidence of their partners. Um, she comes out and tells the police what she actually thinks is going on. And says, well, you can believe me if you want, or you can, you know, you can run some checks. And if it doesn't work, if I've written that scene and it doesn't work and it goes in a direction that's going to lead me into a dead end, there there are occasions when I'll go back and I'll just excise that character 
and rewrite a new one in or, or phrase it, put it another way. Because obviously you don't want to end up in, in such a corner that you can't get out. But I mean, I have got to a point sometimes where I feel that there's simply not going to be any explanation. I've, I've puzzled about it for a long time. And then something will click in and you, it's a eureka, you, you get these eureka moments and you go, oh my God, it's sitting right in front of me. And that often may be because you're watching a cartoon on TV or something bonkers and small, it's a small detail, but it will trigger it. I don't actually consciously think about it because I think I was reading them when I was very young. Um, we we never watched TV at home ever, but the whole family lived in the library. So I just I just read every crime novel going. The, the kind that, so once you get the conventions, you don't really think about them anymore um, because they're just ingrained in you. I've written quite a lot of super, supernatural things as well in the past. And there's a similar thing at work with those. There's certain rules that you just basically understand, you know, and and you follow them. And I tell, when when somebody hasn't followed them and you read a book by them, it really sticks out <clears throat> and they, you find it difficult to read. Speaking about rules there, moving away from the rules of a genre, general rules of writing. I spoke to one writer recently who was saying that they always live by the the mantra to to get into a scene as late as you can you know don't don't leave any padding beforehand just get into the scene get into the action as quickly as possible let's hook the reader in what rules of writing do you live by across every method that you use i'm frantically trying to look up my folder which has got the rules of writing written across it um i actually uh, because i run a, a 365 day a year blog i actually put a lot of articles about the rules of writing onto onto the blog um, because actually they sort of change all the time I mean um, I'd like to think there was one set of clear rules that you can operate with constantly I mean there, there, there are certain things you know like that you don't have to explain why two people fall in love you just have to know that they do I think in the same way that you don't need to explain why one person decides to kill another one you do sometimes uh, the the over explained book is is very it, it doesn't give the reader any chance to contribute anything and i think some of the best books i've ever read um leave a lot of open questions and that's um that's where you can if two people have read the same book you can have a really good argument about it i mean the obvious example a famous example of the book Picnic at Hanging Rock about the school four schoolgirls who go missing on Ayers Rock in um, Australia in 1900. Uh, it's a wonderful, strange mystery. And the, the denouement was removed by the editor who said, you don't need to know what happened to them. It needs to be an open-ended mystery. Mm-hmm. And the book became an incredible bestseller and it became a war-winning film. But it still has no ending. <laughs> the ending was thrown it, away. Do you think an editor today would quite take that risk? <laughs> no, I, no, I absolutely don't think they would. I mean, I think we've gone. I think we've gone backwards. Um, I've, paperbacks were very cheap in the nineteen sixties because paper became cheap again after the war, and lots of people got published in paperback rather than hardback because it was cheaper, and. Paperbacks published the most astonishing books that would now go into, um, oh, I don't know, the academic shelf um, turned up, or the experimental shelf turned up in paperback on in in you know W. H. Smith, 
and this astonishing array of um, of novels and collections of short stories appeared from nowhere, and I, that's pretty much where I bought my, you know, second hand second hand paperbacks, and I've still got all of those. I look back at them now, and I think maybe two thirds of these wouldn't be published now. Uh, lastly, you are, you know, you're working on your twentieth Brian and May book. You've you've just published the nineteenth. How are you? How are you mixing up the uh, the the, the form formula is the wrong word, but how are you mixing up the way you are telling Brian and May stories to make sure? Well, not just that the reader is getting what they want because they need they keep coming back for these characters, but also that you're keeping yourself invested as a writer that has been with these characters for such a long time. Well, if I'm bored, they're going to be bored. The readers are going to be bored. So it's very important that I'm not bored. Um, I treat the, I kind of treat the books as each one as a crime novel that happens to have the same characters in. So um, often, I mean, the first 10, each one is a very clear example of a specific type of crime novel. So you'll get the suspense, the why done it, the how done it, the Christie kind of style um, the John Dixon car kind of style. So I, I went for specific types of crime book and I did one in each category. I even did a, um, a country house murder mystery, you know, Hall of Mirrors, uh, which I did as a sort of 17th book, I think. And so I've changed it a lot as I've gone along by keeping the surprises coming. Um, and the other thing is, is in between each of these series books, I write a standalone thriller or a different type of book. So um, when I was doing the last Bryant and May book, I was writing a thriller which is now called Hot Water, which is hopefully coming out soon. And some of the some of the ideas and, and thing, themes that came up in that book ended up going into Bryant and May. So they they feed each other. So I think you need to keep doing other things outside of a series to keep it fresh. That is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Thank you so much to Christopher Fowler. His new book, Oranges and Lemons, is out right now. You can find out more about it and even get a copy over at writersroutine.com. Uh, and while you're there, you can get in touch with the show. Let us know what you think. Click the uh, click the contact form on the website. Uh, if you are online, please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts while you're there, if that's how you listen. Uh, tell a mate about the show. Follow us on Twitter. Uh, give us support over at patreon.com as well. That would be amazing. Next week, by the way, we are chatting to Jo Thomas about her romantic, food-inspired getaway novels. That is next week on Writer's Routine. I will see you then. Bye. <laughs>
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.